My name is John White. I am the Dean of Student Life here at Princeton Seminary and the Vice President for Student Relations. And I think it'd be appropriate if we begin our time in prayer. Please pray with me. Great God of heaven and earth, the giver of life, we thank you for this rich history that we have inherited. And we thank you that we can walk through those difficult times, learning the lessons from those who have gone before. We pray that as we move into that future that you have intended for us, that we can move beyond arrogance, that we can move beyond hate, that we can just live within the fullness of your love as we embrace, yes, the differences that we have. And as we go into the future, may we look to one another as truly sisters and brothers, as we are united with the purpose of serving you. Great God, we thank you for the alums of this wonderful institution. And we pray for those students who are to graduate this Saturday. And for those who are still studying and graduating years in the future, as we move into that line, may we feel the power, the movement of your spirit. And we ask this in the name of the one who came to live and to die so that we can live, Christ Jesus. Amen. 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 I am here not just as the Dean of Student Life, but I am here as the person who is, has been called upon to chair what is called the, wow, this is one of the longest names, <laughs> the Historical Audit on Slavery at Princeton Theological Seminary Recommendations Task Force. That's a long name. This task force has been at work for the entire year crafting recommendations. And the recommendations that this task force has been working towards will be presented to the Board of Trustees later this week. But this work, as we have taken the time to look at the history of Princeton Theological Seminary has been going on for several years intently. As your packet said, this work was begun 
in 2016 when President Barnes commissioned a committee to look at the history of the seminary, particularly as it had to do with slavery, because it has been talked about in urban legend, rural legend, legend, you can call it what it is, about just the history. What was the history of slavery here with an institution that goes back to 1812? There were a number of folks who worked on a previous committee that presented what has been called the historical audit. And I trust that many of you have had an opportunity to read through that. That has been on the website of the seminary since October. So many people have come to me and said, wow, where can I read it? I said, on the, on the website, it's there. <laughs> Gee, has it been there long? I said, since October. And we have been receiving as now the, the recommendations task force, we have been working since October 2018. And the four individuals, myself included, who are before you are members of that recommendations task force. Allow me the opportunity just to introduce them. We have a PTS alum, Gordon McCoskey, Associate Professor of Christian Education and Chair and Director of PhD Studies. Gordon is the only person of this panel who has been both on the original writing team for the audit and is also on the Recommendations Task Force. We also have Dr. Karen Jackson Weaver. I have to read it because since I have been here for the last six years, Karen has worked with a number of institutions, and these are some wonderful institutions because she has been at Princeton University, Harvard University, Oxford, and now she is the Associate Vice President for Global Faculty Engagement and Innovation Advancement at New York University. And she's also on our board of trustees. And then we have the Reverend Dr. Marcus Tillery. He is an educator. He's an alumnus of Princeton Theological Seminary 2017 class. And he is now the pastor of the Community Church of East Williston in New York. They all have something to give to this discussion. Gordon from his work with the previous committee, Karen, she can talk to why the Board of Trustees thinks this work is so important, and Marcus, because of his viewpoint as an alum, as a pastor, and as one who was reared in the rural South. Am I right there, Brother Mark? Amen. There we go. And so I am going to step out of the way because we will have some ground to cover in this next 46 minutes. Dr. McCoskey. 
Good afternoon. I'm going to talk just briefly about how the report, the slavery audit, came about. Some of the highlights of it, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend that you do. I just reread it and thought, wow, this is pretty good work. Uh, and I don't know. Uh, and then talk about what I think it means for Princeton Seminary and theological education and pastoral leadership. So first, where did this come from? Well, there, there are really two kind of streams that came together. One came from uh, a project that Rick Osmer and I were working on on the history of practical theology at Princeton Seminary in advance of the bicentennial um, called With Piety and Learning. And I drew the short straw and got the 19th century people. So I spent a couple of summers in the archives in the seminary and also at the Presbyterian Historical Foundation or Society in Philadelphia and read all kinds of 19th century longhand and discovered something I wasn't looking for, which was um, notes, lecture notes, and other writings from Archibald Alexander, Samuel Miller, and others uh, on the faculty in the 19th century who had a lot to say about slavery and race. And that became a kind of growing focal point of my thinking about practical theology at Princeton Seminary in, that, in the 19th century. And so I used slavery and race as a way to test and evaluate the practical theology that was at work here. Um, that started uh, a little bit earlier. Um, and then in 2014, I believe it was, ABS, the black student group, um, asked the president to engage in some kind of historical audit. Those two streams came together at the fall faculty conference in 2015. Every year, the day after Labor Day, the faculty gathers and we talk about issues. That particular year, we were talking about slavery, uh, not slavery, but race and theological education. And we had read some stuff by James Cone and other authors. And I had been on sabbatical, and I said, I said you know, we should talk about Princeton Seminary and our own issues about race. So I talked about some of what I had discovered. And so afterwards, combined with ABS's petition, the president said, we need to look into this and really examine it. So for a couple of years, several of us, Jim Moorhead and Yolanda Pierce, Ken Henke, myself, uh, Kermit Moss, uh, and some others looked into the history of slavery at PTS. So here's some of what we found. I don't, I mean, I could go on for the whole rest of the time, so I'm just going to, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to try to keep it under control and give some, some highlights, if you can call it that. First of all, we discovered that uh, the land that seminary is built on uh, was given by um, the Stockton family. Morvan is across the street, their mansion, and one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. That family owned slaves and mainly got their wealth from owning slaves and using slave labor. And they donated the land to us, upon which we built the seminary. We also discovered that none of our buildings seem to have been built by slaves. We have records of who built the buildings, and they were white laborers, and we have receipts and so on. So. Um, doesn't look like there were any slaves used to build Alexander Hall, for example, or, or Miller Chapel. Uh, <clears throat> we did discover, though, that the first faculty members owned slaves. Archibald Alexander, Samuel Miller, Charles Hodge all owned slaves at various points in their lives and benefited from it in various ways. I won't go on, but Archibald Alexander, his salary was paid before he went to Philadelphia and before he came to Princeton. 
by a congregation, a Presbyterian congregation of Virginia that owned slaves, and that's how they paid a salary, is by the money they got from their labor and by renting them out. Uh, and there's more. There was one slave in particular that uh, he brought with uh, um, him and his family to Philadelphia, and she was eventually set free because if you were in, Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania for six months as a slave, you'd have to be set free. Um, but things kind of went badly for her and her husband, and then they sent her back to Virginia to the family plantation, and she became a slave again. Um, so it's a fact that the people that our buildings are named after were slave owners and benefited from slavery. It's also a fact that none of them liked slavery. They all, in print and in sermons, said that slavery was a bad idea and it should end. The question was, how and when? Princeton Seminary's faculty and all the faculty through the 19th century, even after the Civil War, and the Board of Trustees supported gradualism. They assumed that slavery would go out of business eventually, and actually not too far into the future. And I used to think that was a quirky idea until I heard Gordon Wood, who is an American historian speak over at the university, he said that was a fairly widespread idea that white people thought slavery would go out of business in um, a couple of decades. So the faculty here and the Board of Trustees was very concerned that the church not be divided and the country not be divided by pushing for immediatism, also known as abolitionism. They also had the problem with abolitionists in that um, they suspected people like William Lloyd Garrison as, uh, to be atheists, which is not true, but that's what they thought. And they thought that the abolitionists would destroy the church and destroy the country, like rip them both down the middle. And about that, they were not wrong. That did happen in the Civil War, in the, in the run-up to the Civil War. But gradualism was the idea that we have to take this as a middle way between supporting slavery and getting rid of it immediately. So we're gonna go by stages. This is kind of the Princeton Seminary way, it's the middle gradualist way. Um, <clears throat> concretely, that meant that they supported the American Colonization Society, which Archibald Alexander says was founded in Princeton. The idea was freed slaves would be sent, we'd raise money to send freed slaves back to Africa. And the solution to the race problem, he says, in the longest book Archibald Alexander ever wrote, which is 600 pages, called The History of Colonization in Western Africa, not a book on apologetics or the gospel, is on colonization. He says, it would take a 1,000 years for white and black to be equals in this country. And even then, one of them would have to leave. It's never going to happen, in other words. The only solution is colonization. And though Thomas Jefferson and people in New England in the colonial period had talked about colonization schemes, it really got going by a Presbyterian minister from Princeton, um, Robert Finley, who was ordained before there was Princeton Seminary. And while he was the pastor at the Basking Ridge Presbyterian Church, he came down here, gathered the seminary faculty and the university faculty, all of whom Presbyterian ministers, and said, this is what we ought to do. We ought to have a national organization to raise money to send freed blacks back and eventually all blacks to Africa. And that will accomplish several purposes. It'll solve the race problem in America. It will evangelize Africa because now by the providence of God, these people have been enslaved and they're, oops, they're now Christians and so they'll bring the gospel back to Africa. 
the records that we have uh, in various places say that everybody in town that was Presbyterian thought this was a great idea. And John Finley went then to Washington, D.C., and with his brother-in-law, co-founded the American Colonization Society, which was from 1816 until 1964. Just think about that. 1964 is when it went out of business in the United States. It was an effort to make it possible for African Americans to go to Africa as a way to do all the things I mentioned. Um, <clears throat> Princeton Presbyterians supported that wholeheartedly. In fact, the Stockton family had um, one of the sons who was a naval officer who went to West Africa and, in long story short, held a gun to a king's head and said, either I'll blow your head off or you give us this land for Liberia. So that's how we got Liberia. Princeton Presbyterians created the country. It was not recognized by the United States, however, until just before the Civil War, actually in the Civil War, because the United States didn't want to see itself as a colonial power because of our revolutionary mentality away from colonization. So there was this funny dance of the government feeding money to the American Colonization Society. And every one of our faculty and members of the Board of Trustees were raising money for this effort. Even after the 13th Amendment, after the Civil War and Emancipation in 1877, uh, downstairs in this building, you'll find a big plaque to Alexander Taggart McGill, who was the senior faculty member and the de facto president of the institution, the practical theologian. He was still raising money for colonization. He still thought at the end of Reconstruction, the solution to America's race problems is Africa. Ship them out. This was Princeton Seminary in the 19th century, which I don't know about some of you, but when I was a student here, none of this was in evidence. It was sitting over there in the archives, but uh, so we have, a, and it wasn't like this was a, a peripheral issue for the seminary. This was at the heart of what they were thinking. Archibald Alexander spent a lot of time lecturing to students about to go into ministry. Don't get involved in abolition, don't be involved in politics, and basically educate slaves so that they can read the Bible and become Christian and be good slaves. That's basically what those lectures say. Um, <clears throat> there is a sub-theme, which is a little more hopeful, that is not, ever, not all the students believe this. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Some students, either by critical reason or probably more likely the work of the Holy Spirit, thought otherwise. So among our graduates in the 19th century, we had, before the Civil War, we had a small contingent, maybe 10%, who were abolitionists. Who They sat there and heard these lectures, and they knew what the mentality of Princeton Seminary was, but they went and did otherwise. People like, actually my wife is here, John Finley Crow, her fourth great-grandfather. Wave your hand. Yes. <laughs> He left here in 1814 after nine months of study. There was no standard degree or anything. And he went, founded Hanover College and McCormick Seminary. He was an abolitionist. And uh, also John Monteith went to the Detroit uh, area and founded with a Catholic priest the University of Michigan, also an abolitionist. And there's a whole string of these. It's in the report. Not as many as it would be great to celebrate, but we did have some. And it was only students. No faculty, no trustees, only students, and even then just a small group. But there are some hopeful things there. We have the first martyr for the freedom of the press. The press was an abolitionist press in East Alton, Illinois. We also have, we think, the first African-American theological student in North America. 
Theodore Wright, who was admitted here in 1828, which is, if you think about it, pretty early. And he was allowed to graduate, unlike, I have to say, at Yale, where they had uh, the Reverend Pennington, who was a later colleague of Theodore Wright's as Presbyterian ministers in New York City. He wasn't allowed to sit in classrooms. He had to sit outside, and he, they didn't give him an, a, a degree. The University of Heidelberg gave Pennington a degree. And even to this day, they give the Pennington Award for American leadership. At least at Princeton Seminary, we had Theodore Wright, and we gave him a degree. And he became a pastor and an abolitionist. And ironically, he would come back here and talk to his former faculty with great affection and love, even though he thought they were completely on the wrong side of history and the gospel. Um, <clears throat> the last thing I want to say, I'm probably running out of time, is that uh, is about money. The seminary's money is tied up in slavery in its first, uh, cent first decades. So there's several things to say about that. First, some of our money came from slave owners who were Presbyterians, white Presbyterians, and gave money. Some of the money came from those who, uh, like Mrs. Brown, who gave the money for Brown Hall. Her husband um, was a shipping magnate and made his money on uh, sugarcane and rum, which came from the Caribbean, which was produced by slaves. A lot of the money at the seminary also came from the General Assembly. And it's very hard to figure out who's, which part of that money came from slavery, but it's pretty safe to say most of it, almost all of it. Because almost the entire American economy that we benefit from now was founded on slave wages, slave labor. So uh, that's the general thing. We can also see that um, in about, I can't remember the exact dates, but in the 1830s and 40s, there was a scheme to double or increase our yield on investments, which involved speculative investing in expanding southern companies into Louisiana and Texas and so on, all of which was about slavery. And we got a lot of money from that until the Panic of 1837, and then our endowment was cut in half. There was another factor that uh, the General Assembly decided to put Princeton Seminary in Princeton because it was the southernmost part of the North. And Southerners could kind of see themselves coming here and not being treated badly. And they had the first faculty member who was from Virginia. So there was real concern that we don't alienate half or more, sometimes more of our students and our donors by pushing slavery and the end of slavery too much. So anyway, that's, that's a whole lot more to say about all that. I just want to end by saying what's something that comes at the end of the report. I'm going to quote myself, which I don't usually do, but I kind of like what I wrote. <laughs> <clears throat> the deepest level of the relationship between Princeton Seminary and slavery has to do with race. Okay? Underneath the slavery issue is the race issue. Um, white normativity and the panoply of assumptions that support it seem to have driven the limited theological imagination at work concerning slavery and the glaring contradictions between fears about black violence toward whites and romantic visions of black evangelization of Africa by the same people they feared would rise up stealthily and cut their throats as they slept in their beds. Deeply embedded white normativity seems to have fused in the minds of the seminary's leadership with civilization and the gospel. 
and that African Americans and Native Americans could only rise to the level of civilization when they were driven away from white society long enough to see the light and become culturally white enough to interact with whites on the same terms as whites. So that's a lot. The finest theological minds of the 19th century believed they understood the gospel, and they knew what it was. From our vantage point, looking backwards, I think we would sort of give them a D minus. What they equated whiteness with the gospel and with being civilized. So the question before us is, if that can happen to the greatest minds of the 19th century, what about us? In what ways have we identified our own unconscious biases with what the gospel is? What is the gospel? That's really the question. And what does it mean to live in light of the gospel and to prepare people to serve that gospel? Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Dean White, for that wonderful introduction. And I'm excited to see so many of you at this session. Uh, as Gordon indicated, we really could spend hours and hours and hours uh, talking about the historical audit as well as our experiences thus far. I've been asked this afternoon to really focus on my experience as a trustee as well as the work that I've done at similar institutions as it relates to the history of enslaved individuals and what that means in terms of thinking about the future of higher education with particular schools. And for our, our situation here at the seminary, what does it mean for theological education in the 21st century as we think about global ministry and global impact? And so in the time that I have uh, this afternoon, I'd really like to talk first about my role as a trustee and the work that we've done with the Historical Audit Committee. And I just want to pick up on a couple of threads that Gordon raised that I think are really important for us to think about within this particular contemporary context. You heard, how many of you have actually read the report? How many people have? Okay, great. If you haven't, that's your homework assignment. Uh, you must read it. It's wonderful. It's historical. And quite honestly, one of the things we talked about in our deliberations as a committee throughout the year was the importance of us as members of the Princeton Theological Seminary knowing our history, our legacy, and making sure our students, faculty, staff, and alumni are oriented to our history. So that means what we studied, you know, we celebrate, we come back, and we have certain nor uh, norms and cultural traditions, but how much of our history do we really know? And do we orient current students and future students into our history so that they have an understanding and appreciation for what we're teaching and what we're doing? So I would encourage you to, to take some time and really read through it. I want to just highlight a couple of points that I think are quite revelatory in terms of what we learn about our history and what that means for the present and for the future. You, you learned about, uh, just a few minutes ago, about our role and our involvement in the American Colonization Society. Really, we were the incubator for that, in terms of that thought, that mode of operation. And what that meant is enslaved Africans, people of African descent, were sent to Liberia. And so you have this development of Liberia on the continent of Africa, 
And what that means in terms of Princeton Theological Seminary is you have intellectual genius that's never realized with individuals who aren't allowed the opportunity to attend school here. We have so many great thinkers who were sent to Liberia who are never afforded the opportunity to study here, to pray here, to meditate here, to contemplate here. And as a trustee, I wonder, as we think about our history, as we look at the present and plan for the future, what does that mean in terms of thinking about our plans, our strategic planning, the work that we do, and how do we reconcile the exclusions that have happened throughout history? Not just here at the seminary, but I have to tell you, uh, when Dean White shared my background and the work that I have done across different schools, one of the things that's been most striking to me is the level of exclusion of certain populations at each of the institutions that I've been at. And I was brought on board to really focus on academic and intellectual work with our graduate students and our faculty. But one of the greatest challenges was thinking about how we taught what we taught and what that meant for the current population and how were we recruiting to bring the best minds. At Princeton University, where I served as a dean, I think many of you know this, but I don't think people really um, understand the depth and the implications of what it means. Princeton University, our sister school right across the street, did not have women admitted in a part of classes until the 1970s. So what that means in terms of looking at, if you go to P-RAID, the annual reunion that they have in the gathering, you'll see only up until the 1970s, all men. There were women who were allowed to study in particular classes, but none were awarded a degree. So we have hundreds of years of education and access that were never allowed to women. So we have the 1970s, women are allowed to apply and admit and matriculate uh, to take advantage of studies. And so we have co-education that takes place there. But what's interesting, if you look at the history with the graduate school, which is where I devoted a lot of my time, we had a lot of trouble attracting master's and doctoral level students to study there, particularly in STEM fields that were predominantly male. And what we found is that some of the historical vestiges of exclusion impacted our contemporary frameworks for recruitment and outreach. I think much of that same framework applies here when we think about the seminary's history. At Harvard Kennedy School, where I was a dean for several years, where I was recruited, I was recruited from Princeton to go to Harvard, and they asked me to look at a number of policy issues and to oversee both their curriculum as well as working with faculty. And the differences weren't as stark at the Kennedy School, but if you think about the history of the college and many of the graduate schools there, it's actually very similar to Princeton in terms of the exclusion, not just of women, but of people of color. And so once again, we have this challenge when we talk about policy issues. Uh, they have the School of Divinity there. And when you look at the current population of students, uh, one of the biggest challenges and issues that all of us really focused on during our time as deans was how do we attract a diverse, a diverse group of students to come and study here, to, to think here, and to do the work that we want to do. And a lot of that outreach and recruitment existed on pipelines and social and cultural connections that existed historically. 
So I think it's instructive. Uh, it was for me very instructive thinking about how we did our outreach informally, how we shared opportunities and how those networks, and these are informal networks, not the formal networks, the informal networks brought about access and education about what it means to think about your undergraduate degree or your de graduate degree, what type of funding was available, what type of loan forgiveness, what type of programming and uh, vocational opportunities were available. And in the time I have left, I'll just talk a little bit about the work that I did in the UK at Oxford and my current role at, at NYU and how I think it's important for us to look at some of our peer institutions and what they're doing in ways that we can learn from this kind of historical analysis and retrospective approach. At Oxford, I spent time there really helping them to think about their development and launch of the Blavatnik School of Government. It's a policy school, and many people don't realize that up until recently, Oxford did not have a school of government or a school of policy studies. It just launched about uh, five or ten, about eight years ago. It's a, it's a new policy school. Uh, they're known as being one of the oldest uh, institutions that teach in the Western tradition, but for years and years they operated without policy or governmental studies. So Nari Woods founded the Bavatnik School of, of Government. She asked me to come and work with them on developing their curriculum and to make sure that we were able to work with faculty and think about what does it mean to educate students who will impact policies from across the globe in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, Australia, in America. Uh, and while their student population is very diverse, as you can imagine, the faculty and administration is not there yet. And that's one of the things that they're working on. So I think for us, what we can learn from our peers as we think about the audit and what it means for the future of the seminary is really thinking about our history and our legacy as an institution and what does that compel us to do as we think about the future of Princeton Seminary? What does our future look like? What do we envision? Who have we left out? Who's been excluded? What investment are we willing to make to bring the best and the brightest in a way that really allows us to do God's work for God's people across the globe? Thank you so much. First, giving honor to God, omniscient, omnipotent God of my fathers, the one who made this world and is present in it right now. I give thanks for Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, the one who gave his life that a fool like me might have a chance at life everlasting, a fool like me. I stand this afternoon on behalf of my ancestors, many of whom came to this country chained to the bottom of a boat like a pig or a chicken. It is from their position in chains that I see this world, and it is from their position in chains that I seek redemption. A fool like me. I was raised, born and raised in a small rural community in Northeast North Carolina in the heart of tobacco country, little town called Tillery, North Carolina. You might imagine, given my last name, just how big it is. 240 living and dead. <laughs> Again, in the heart of tobacco country. No, my, my folks weren't prophets, nor not the son of a prophet. 
My folks were dirt farmers from eastern North Carolina. We walked off of the Tillery Plantation, what is known today as the California State Prison, to a system of sharecropping. We walked from chains to a system of sharecropping. And the tyranny of that system remains in the dotted landscape of eastern North Carolina to this day. There were two communities there. Fortillery was a site of what became known as the resettlement programs, uh, FDR's resettlement programs, what many refer to as 40 acres and a mule. Let me be clear. Government didn't give you nothing. Not 40 acres, not a mule. Not an opportunity to grow and prosper equal with those about you, equal with those who once enslaved you. And so today, when we talk about slavery, we have to understand that it's a history that goes back through systems, that goes back through processes that in and of themselves did nothing more than continue the chain. It just made it a little longer. Maybe the rubber end was plastic. It was nonetheless a chain. And I'm telling you, it remains so to this day. The rural landscape of this country, the home of the brave, the land of the free, is dotted by the shame of slavery to this day. Out of those two communities that we had there, those who walked off of the plantation into the sharecropping system, and then those who were brought in from other parts of the, of the nation, made available 40 acres and a mule because those who came off of those plantations understood how to work the land. Even though they were displaced by oppression, even though they competed with those who had once enslaved them, they were able to compete and became known as a center of productivity and thus identified by the highest office in this land as a group of people capable of being successful at farming. Today, given those two populations, there are six black farmers in Tillery, North Carolina. Six. Out of 300, there are six. The, the statistics show that African Americans have lost land at rates as 9,000 acres a week. 9,000 acres a week. We had more land when we came out of slavery than we do now. Isn't that one heck of a statistic. 18 million acres into the 60s when we couldn't even vote. And now we've lost land at 9,000 acres a week. I take offense to the notion that the land was lost. Mm. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Yes, Something that is that critical, you don't lose. You might stuff it in a mattress. You might put it in a wall somewhere, but you don't lose. Somebody looking for that land. That land was stolen from people who were bending their back.
people who were bending their back, worried about what they could get out of this ground, and somebody else was stealing that land. And yet, we come to this conversation. <laughs> How and when? How and when? That is the question, brother. I hear you. How and when? I was raised by my great-grandmother, Mrs. Hattie Johnson White. Mrs. Hattie Johnson White was 71 years old when she took me in. She raised me, my father, and my grandfather on a little farm in eastern North Carolina. I want you to know that I don't come here with the story of a victim. For Ms. Hattie Johnson White was nobody's victim. And even as she looks down on me today, I see her with her 32 snub nose now saying, don't you tell nobody I should spit on. <laughs> she had a second grade education, but she could count money. <laughs> a second grade education and she ran a farm that was as large as, in those days, a woman. Thank God. 280 acres. Her and her sister. Undial, baby. And they had a cousin who stayed with them who was intellectually challenged, Cousin Annie. Three women. Raised three generations on a little farm in eastern North Carolina. Now I'm the product of that and proud to stand here today. I want to tell you a little story about my great grandmother because I want you to understand the context for my passion. My great grandmother that I told you carried a 32 snub nose in a little pouch. I know we're in the era now of gun control. If I'm going to give up mine, everybody ought to give up theirs. <laughs> but she carried that 32 snub nose because that spoke to the times that she lived in. So later when I got a little understanding about guns, I asked Grandma, why do you carry a, a 32, a revolver, and a snub nose? Why would you do that when you could have a 9 millimeter with 17 shots in it? Just squeeze the trigger one time. And she looked at me. And she said, because it don't chunk no shell. <laughs> I know I lost you there because I went back to eastern North Carolina. Because the shell doesn't get thrown out. The shell stays in the gun. So if I have to use this, I'm not leaving no evidence. That's how intentional she was about living. That's how intentional she was about keeping that little farm. That's how intentional she was about making sure that one day I would be standing here talking to you about my great-grandmother, Miss Hattie Johnson White. But it's not about me. Look at me. I'm eating good, living in New York. Got a wonderful church there. Just enough for many of them. But there are so many who can't tell that story. I am the exception to the rule. When you look about this room, the African-Americans and others that are standing with you, 
are exceptions to a rule that we have to change. It's by the grace of God that I could even find my way to Princeton. Some would say it's Aggie pride for I received my undergraduate degree at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University in Greensboro, North Carolina. And if I die, be Aggie, yes, that's cool. <laughs> my graduate degrees are from Iowa State University in Ames, Iowa. You might remember that George Washington Carver did his graduate work there as well. He was forced to stay in the stables while he maintained a 4.0. Lord, have mercy. That's right, a 4.0. He left there to go on to Tuskegee and build one of the world's foremost programs in agriculture. Again, we use bigger words like agriculture to talk about land, farming, and ultimately slavery. Because from my position, when I go back to visit the four brothers who came here from Africa, I go to the Caledonia State Prison. Now I ask you, how different is that than the prison they were in as slaves? It speaks to the complexity of the issues that surround what we've been grappling with on this committee. And yes, it's a very well written report. How do we carry this thing forward? How and when? How will we move against a landscape of poverty and despair that centuries have not been kind to us? Nor the Farmers Home Administration, nor the plantation system of the USDA. Because while you can get a drug, freed up, that has as much fun writing about how it will kill you, you can't get a loan from Farmer's Home Administration if you're two shades darker than me. Mm -hmm. How will we deal with that? They say our founders here were slave owners. They didn't like it. I didn't like it either. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate the writing that they put forth. I gleaned much of that from an article published by Dr. Mikowski. The article was entitled, The Lack of Theological Imagination. Wonderful piece. I like that writing too. <laughs> the lack of theological imagination will not be found in what we do today, will it? Talk to me. We will operate beyond a lack of imagination to address the how and the when. Beyond Princeton to the dirt roads of eastern North Carolina. And I'm telling you, folks just need hope. Hope. You see, Duke University, wonderful institution, is just down the road. When we couldn't sell our tobacco in Rocky Mount, we would drive to Durham to Washington Duke's tobacco houses in what was called Brightleaf Square. 
And then we would hang out on Pettigrew Street all day until everybody else sold their tobacco, and then we would sell ours for pennies on a dollar. You see, that kind of system has us here today. From slavery, from chains, to the kind of system where you have Duke University being built on the backs of former slaves. I'm not telling you something somebody told me. I sat on Pettigrew Street as a child. I loved the blues music that grew out of that experience. We wonder why Durham was known for the Piedmont blues. Well, it was black farmers from eastern North Carolina who sat there all day and gave whatever coins they could to the performers who would make that oppressive moment just a little bit lighter. Washington Duke, wonderful institution. A history, though, that we have to contend with even to this day. But we are not Duke. This is Princeton Seminary. When I was looking for a school to go to, good colleague was nice enough to remind me of a Princeton grad named Colcott Jones. Colcott Jones took the Willie Lynch letter and made it into a proper procedure for dismantling any notions of self-esteem among slaves on plantations in Georgia. He said, why would you want to go to a seminary that produced the likes of Colcott Jones? Because it also produced Theodore Sedgwick Wright. Because it produced the people who are in this room. And we can make a change. <laughs> we can make a difference right from here. Whatever efforts have gone forth in the past have not come from the will of the frozen <laughs> <laughs> Whatever has come forth to feed this hunger that exists in people who've been impoverished for four and five generations. The church is now taking a stand with what we've done here. The church has moved us out of a political discussion to what's right by God. How and when? In the words of those I grew up with, right now. Right now. <laughs> right now. <laughs> right now. I thank you for all that you bring to this world, to this faith, in a world that is struggling with a crisis in faith, we have an opportunity once again to make a difference. I thank you for that opportunity, and I depend on your spirit as we move forward. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.